Hello and welcome to another episode of the County Cricket Podcast in association with our friends at Bear Crickets. I'm your host, Aaron, aka the Cricket Connoisseur, and joining me on my left for today's incredibly special episode of TCCP is none other than Warwickshire cricket historian and club journalist, Mr. Brian Halford. So, Brian, first things first, mate, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure to get you on for a chat about all things Warwickshire cricket. I have to ask, mate, how has your day been so far? Hey, Aaron, it's a pleasure to be uh, with you, mate. Uh, not too bad, busy, a busy day, uh, but I'm looking forward to a good nap after doing this because you can't beat an afternoon nap, can you? No, you certainly can't, especially at this time of year. It's it's not been too cold, though, has it, Brian, in terms of usual autumns? It's been relatively mild, but there's still that nip in the air, isn't there? There is indeed, yes, but uh, a nap is good in any season, isn't it? I've noticed it can come in particularly handy on a quiet day in the county championship, but let me tell you, there's uh, there's quite a lot of use of the sofas made in the Edgebaston Media Centre, but don't tell the bosses I said that. No, we'll keep that on the, on the hush for the time being, although this season, I'll tell you what, that, that conclusion to the championship for Warwickshire, that was anything but boring, wasn't it? That was edge of your seat, pulsating, nerve-wracking. I mean, Brian, before well, we get into glad... the conversation today, what, what did Absolutely. you make of that conclusion? Well, I'm very glad I didn't go for a nap on that last afternoon because, uh, I mean, that was something else, wasn't it? And really, you look at the last uh, two days of Warwickshire, or the last days of Warwickshire's two most recent seasons, and they're probably two of the greatest days in the history of the club, aren't they? Um, in a way, this one uh, almost superseded the one where they won the title because I think, as Ollie Hannon Dolby said the other uh, week, uh, when they won the title, in a way, they had nothing to lose, so they could only gain. Whereas this time, of course, they had quite a lot to lose, and, and Liam Norwell was just amazing, wasn't he? But to be fair, so was Ollie Hannon Dolby at the other end. The catching was good, the crowd got involved, my word, didn't they? The noise as those wickets continued to fall, it was a real event. So, yeah, it wasn't a great season for the Bears, was it? But what a finish. Exactly. And we'll have to do the, the post-mortem, I suppose, afterwards over the course of this off-season and improve heading into next summer. But if there's one thing that has to be on the schedule every single year from now on, final day of the season, County Championship at Edgebaston. 2021, remarkable, great win, as you mentioned, historic day for the club, eighth County Championship title, and then 2022, <laughs> the great escape, manufactured by Liam Norwell of Cornwall. Absolutely astonishing stuff and that is exactly why the county championship remains the greatest tournament on the entire planet but brian we aren't here to discuss the modern county championship instead we're here for the second episode of our county cricket heritage series and today's episode is incredibly special to me because the team that we're discussing for today's episode was actually the inspiration for this entire series this is the story of Warwickshire's incredible <laughs> county championship winning team of 1911. And I've got to be honest, Brian, first and foremost, before we discuss the ins and outs of that season, we discuss the key events, the key players, the protagonists of that incredible Bears side. I just wanted to learn a bit more about the history of our club, if I may, because from the early stages of Warwickshire's history, is it safe to say that up until 1911, the Bears were very much a a mediocre side. We are very average when it came to our county championship performances. Absolutely right, they were. Um, and they were pretty mediocre, for the, as you say, for the first, um, was it 18 years or so, where they 
became first class in eighty in ninety four, of course, and into the county championship the following year. And really, until um, nineteen eleven, they bobbed along in mid table or the lower reaches. The four seasons leading up to nineteen eleven, they'd actually finished below Worcestershire, which uh, hurt them in those days, just as it probably would now. So yeah, they were very much um, uh, getting to grip still with. Um, the first-class scene and the, the big and more established counties. And there was absolutely nothing to suggest that they would be anywhere near winning the title in 1911, not least because in 1910 they had a really poor season and then started 1911 with an innings defeat. That's not the makings of a champion side, is it? I do think, Aaron, I have to say, I think the 1911 championship triumph for Warwickshire I'm not just saying this because I've got a Warwickshire connection. I think it is the county championship story ever you know it's just an absolutely unbelievable feat it, it was almost like the Liam Norwell um, feat of the last day of this season time and time again during that season it was a remarkable story it was Brian and this is exactly why I wanted you as the guest for today's episode because a lot of my prior research came from your old articles actually about this team and in terms of the inspiration for this entire series I mentioned that this side almost lit the fire inside of me to start this series as a whole. I'll tell you the story of why they captured my imagination in the first place, actually. And it was in July of this year. I was just on a walk, right, and I was looking at the history of Warwickshire, as you do, host of the County Cricket Podcast, wanted to learn more about my county and the heritage of this great club. And for years, I've spoken about 1911, but briefly, very much in passing, just, oh, we won the championship in 1911. I had no clue as to how remarkable the story of this side was. And as soon as I went down that rabbit hole, goodness me, we're talking months later, it's November, and it still captured my imagination. This is one of the greatest stories, not just in English cricketing history, but in the history of the entire game. And we're going to take you through it in today's episode. But before we do, actually, Brian, just a a brief word on 1910, because this was a, a relatively tumultuous season for the Bears, wasn't it? Okay, you mentioned already 14th in the championship. But the fact was, we also had five captains over the course of that season. Heading into that 1911 season, what do you think sparked the Bears to take the gamble and name a certain Frank Foster as the skipper for that season? Well, of course, as as you well know, Aaron, Frank was such a maverick and he had retired, hadn't he, that winter? Um, he was, what, 22, but a brilliant cricketer. But um, as you say, 19, uh, the 1910 season had been a bit of a shambles with nobody really, because they, in those days, the captain had to be an amateur, of course, because they couldn't have a common or guard professional leading the side. That didn't come, I think, for another 40-odd years. Um, so really, the captaincy was just passed around to, to whichever am- amateur could do it on that day. And it was just a complete mess. They had some really good cricketers in the squad, as was to be proved in 1911. But nobody was able to orchestrate that talent or organise them. Uh, and it, it was a mess. And it duly turned out to be exactly that in the first game of 1911. Foster was sticking to his guns and had retired um, to concentrate on his personal life whatever that was at the time. Well, no doubt we'll talk about more about that, but Frank was an extraordinarily colourful character, to say the least. So they went down to um, to the Oval for the first um, game of the season, got turned over by an innings in a day and a half, and uh, one uh, esteemed correspondent in the national press said they wouldn't make even a good second 11 side. 
Uh, and as soon as the results and the performance was telegraphed back to Warwickshire from the Oval, um, William Foster, who was Frank's dad and a committee member at uh, Edgebaston, was asked, will you go and have a word with your boy again and tell him to come out of retirement sharpish? And he did make that call or he did make that visit. Frank Foster relented and from retirement, he rode to their rescue and he was captain for the second game of the season up at Lancashire. And that's when the fairy tale began. It certainly did, and we'll discuss that and the journey in a lot more detail as today's discussion gets underway, Brian. But you mentioned there about Foster's personality. How would you describe him? I know you've just utilised the word maverick. I've seen the word capricious come up a lot in multiple articles in terms of his personality. But how would you describe Frank Foster, the man, heading into that season in terms of his personality, his style, and also the the methodology that he went about playing the game of cricket? He was quite expansive for a player of that day, wasn't he? He was an incredibly aggressive cricketer. He was always uh, positive. He, he, one of his uh, favourite sayings was that the, the, the batsman should always beat the clock. He said he should always score more than 60 runs an hour. And that came as a bit of a shock to the likes of Billy Quaif, who um, often would bat all day for 60 runs. So um, Foster really did, did inject some urgency and momentum into his team. But the charisma of his personality, as well as his cricket, was was probably the most important thing because he took over this really disparate side of ageing uh, cricketers, some very, very good cricketers, but they'd just been drifting uh, under various captains and achieving very little. And Frank Foster brought them all together and built this team spirit from almost nowhere. And it is really really complicated thing a dressing room in those they still are today any dressing room has got millions of characters in it and millions of things to juggle around but of course you factor in those days that uh, the amateurs in uh, the Warwickshire team and uh, the professionals they changed in different dressing rooms and the amateurs traveled to that first match at Manchester first class on the train and the professionals traveled third class so with all this sort of class apartheid within the dressing room and within the establishment of cricket, Frank Foster had to build this one great big integral unit with one exception, all the players bought into it and the juggernaut began to roll. It most certainly did and Brian, I've got a massive smile on my face to be honest because I've wanted to have this discussion for absolutely months and it's a great way to have it, it's a great excuse to have it. Second episode of the podcast, we are discussing this team and I just wanted to touch upon more about the characters, actually. But before that, I do. I just wanted to <laughs> to ask your opinion on something, because you mentioned it in passing beforehand, and that was Foster's reason for absence on the first day or the first game of that season. <laughs> I've heard conflicting reports about this. So the first one is that he chose business. He wanted to work in the family business, take some time away from cricket. But at the same time, I've also heard reports that it could have been down to a romantic interest in 1910 for example he'd retired beforehand for the exact same reason so in your personal opinion why do you think frank did miss that first game what do you think the underlying reason was we could only guess of course but my hunch is that he uh, retired um to make a little bit of a point to warwickshire and to make it clear how important that he was not that they needed reminding but uh, and i think the official reason so to speak was business but probably 
who knows where the idea that it was for romantic reasons came from, but I think Frank would probably refer, prefer that one. That's a bit more romantic and glamorous, isn't it, than retiring to concentrate on his father's tailor's business. Um, but whichever it was, uh, I don't think it was ever likely to last very long because Frank Foster was uh, a brilliant cricketer and he loved playing cricket. So I think... Um, the retirement was always going to be very, very short-lived. Had Warwickshire performed better at the Oval and, and and not begged him to return quite so quickly, who knows, Frank Foster may well have been coming back to them and saying, can I come back to retirement? But uh, um, I don't think it was ever going to be anything short-lived. Well, thankfully, the Bears, it wasn't. And as you rightfully said, he did come back for the Lanks game. And yeah, the Bears won. And I suppose the rest is, is history from, from there on out. But in terms of those characters, those personalities... The first one that I just wanted to touch upon, because we'll have a discussion about a number of these guys who are involved in this team, because it's almost something written out of a film script. It doesn't sound like a a county championship winning team when you think of their backgrounds, you think of their performances as well in, in years gone by. But the first player that I wanted to mention, and Brian, I wanted to know if you had a bit more insight into this guy's both playing career and his wider life in general, was the captain for that Surrey game, because he's a very interesting individual. A, a certain Charles Frederick Cowan, or I should say Royal Navy Lieutenant Charles Frederick yeah. Cowan. What can you tell me about him as a cricketer? And of course, the outside life, because by 1928, he was a captain in the Royal Navy. Yeah. He led quite the interesting life, didn't he? He did. I don't think um, he was a particularly great cricketer, was he, to say the least? And this was part of the, the, the problem that, that Warwickshire were suffering from and it wasn't just them of course in those days the captain had to be picked from the amateurs on the on the uh, associated with the club and uh, in in that era Warwickshire didn't have any amateurs that were particularly good cricketers so Cowan bless him took it on for the first game of the season I can't remember now I don't think did he get a pair? He didn't get very many runs, certainly, and led them to the most ignominious of defeats. And I'm pretty sure that nobody was more relieved than he was when Frank Foster said, um, I'll come back out of retirement. And was that Cowan's last game for the Bears? I don't think he played too much more, did he? No, he didn't. But again, that's because he had that interesting life outside. I mean, I did a lot of research about this guy. And first and foremost, he wasn't he actually born in Warwickshire. He was born in Wales, in a, in a place called Clangenny. But he qualified for the Bears as a result of his family living in Stratford. And he played his cricket not very far away from me in Leamington Spa. So I thought that was another interesting route into the game, how he became qualified. And of course, that naval connection. <laughs> he went on to become the commander of the HMS Nirana. And then, as I mentioned, by 1928, was a commander, as was a captain, sorry, in the Royal Navy. So he led quite the interesting life outside of cricket. Probably won't be remembered for his on field stuff, but quite the. Quite the life lived, I'd say. And interesting, too, that he was... I didn't realise that, mate. You were telling me stuff I don't know there. And um, Alf Glover, of course, one of the, I think one of the many captains of the preceding few years. He was another um, guy from Leamington Spa. I think he's buried in Kenilworth, actually, just uh, around this neck of the woods as well, where I am as well. And it's just a reminder, isn't it, of how... Uh, integrated in this part of the, the region, Warwickshire County Cricket Club is as well. I mean, we all love Edgepaston. It's a great base and wonderful ground. But uh, the roots of uh, Warwickshire County Cricket Club are very much over this way as well. Could not have said that any better, Brydon's. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just know I'm going to enjoy this episode. 
I really do. It's an excuse to talk all things Warwickshire. I'm incredibly proud to be from this county. And again, this team, definitely a reason as to why we should be so proud as a club. And you mentioned that intrinsic link, I suppose, between rural Warwickshire and the Warwickshire team. Before we mentioned the, the Birmingham boys, because a lot of this team were born in the second city. One of the main protagonists of this team was a certain Frank Field. Now, a lot of people might not even know of this guy, and yet he was one of the most important figures in Warwickshire's early history. So, Brian, what can you tell us about Frank Field, the man, and Frank Field, the cricketer? What made him so special in that bare seam attack? Well, as a cricketer, he was he, he could just obliterate uh, opposing teams with pace. I mean, he was uh, Foster was a very, very fine, fast, medium left-arm bowler. Then you had Frank Field coming in. He's a big man, really fast, and just basically um, battering them at one end with with sheer pace. But I mean, what a, a very he was known, I think, as honest Frank. He was just, and he he couldn't have been more from a, a more rural area than Frank Field is from a tiny little hamlet called Weathley, right down in the south of Warwickshire, which is almost, I think, on a spur just into Worcestershire. It could very easily have been a Worcestershire cricketer. I think if he'd been born 500 yards further west. But uh, fortunately for the Bears, he was just in Warwickshire, and uh, he was in many ways responsible. Field and Foster, basically, I think they both took more than 100 wickets that season, didn't they? And many of Frank Foster's wickets owed a great deal to to, to Frank Field at the other end, um, powering in and, and providing the perfect foil, not just professionally, but personally, because Foster was probably the most complicated human being you could possibly have. Frank Field was right at the other end of the scale. You always knew what you were going to get from him. He bowled through injuries. He was just a great, honest, very, very good bowler and very, very reliable. He most certainly was. And I mean, even looking back at his his older stats, so he made his debut for the Bears back in 1897. But in, in 1899, which was a dry summer, hints, hints, dry summer might also come up for 1911 as well, given the weather patterns that were taking place during that year, but he took 73 wickets in that year for the Bears. And he finished his overall career with 1,026 first-class wickets at 23.48. And yet, no one ever seems to talk about this guy. So we'll probably discuss him in a lot more detail when we get onto the season progression and we discuss some of the key moments from the season itself. But Frank Field, for Warwickshire fans, definitely someone to be aware of. Wouldn't you agree, Brian? Absolutely. And one of the, you mentioned the key moments of 1911. Um, one of the key moments for which Frank Field was responsible probably came in uh, the uh, the match at uh, Harrogate, where um, uh, on the last day uh, they needed to bowl Yorkshire out. And uh, the captain had been out larging it in Harrogate, as he liked, liked to do on away matches, and wasn't in a particularly good state on the morning of the last, game, last day of the, the match. And it was Frank Pastor who went to his room and gave him a, a, an ice bath and got him uh, active and ready to bowl again that day. And I think it says a lot for Foster's respect for Frank Field, that Field could do that and basically tell the captain, come on, mate, get your act together. We've got a match to win here. <laughs> well, it's interesting you mentioned that, Brian, because this was one of my questions actually for today. How would you describe that relationship between Foster and Field? Because obviously on the field, there was that, that, that understanding, wasn't there? They knew each other's strengths. Foster believed heavily in Frank Field's ability. But I'm also yeah. right in thinking, again, this is up for debate, depending on which articles you read, but weren't these two some of the pioneers of leg theory bowling? 
which ultimately became infamous for the Bodyline series of, of 1932-33. Yeah, there was, there was, I don't know about Field so much, but there was definitely, I mean, Foster definitely did, was one of the architects, I mean, arguably the architect of, uh, of, of leg theory. I don't think Frank Field would have approved of it, uh, to be honest, because, I mean, Frank was famous for uh, often apologising for, for batsmen for getting them out. He was such a nice chap and he didn't want to spoil their day. But he did spoil an, all, an awful lot of days, didn't he? Because he did take an awful lot of wickets. But uh, personally, you couldn't have two more different guys. But they, they clearly did gel and they went out together and they, they, they clearly drank together because it was very much a social scene uh, in those days, in 1911. Um, but two more different men you couldn't wish to have. And probably you wouldn't want more than one Frank Foster in your field in your side certainly because one personality of that size is plenty um you could do with you could always do with two or three frank fields in your team i think because he just he just was the archetypal team man very good at his job and would run through the proverbial brick wall for your captain it's funny actually i'm just listening back to that description he sounds almost like the 1911 version of oliver hannon dolby doesn't he he does, yeah. I think, yeah. I think both men would would be proud of that comparison, yeah. And in a way, Foster was was a lot like uh, in batting and bowling, a lot like Chris Wokes, you know, very skillful, very fine bowler, um, and a, a good, forceful uh, attacking batsman who could both play proper cricket shots, if you like, and hit the ball a long way. So um, I don't think Wokesy has quite got some of the uh, angles to his personality that Frank Foster had, fortunately. <laughs> Yeah, thankfully. Thankfully, it's not as capricious a word which will continue to be used in today's episode. But Brian, before we get on to discussing some of the other personalities, I think it's important that we just get back onto the actual journey of that team in 1911, because we've mentioned the first couple of games. So we had that innings and 46 run defeat, a hammering at the hands of Surrey in the first game, then a 137 run victory over Langs at Old Trafford. That was followed by a nine-wicket victory over Leicestershire at Edgebaston and a two-wicket win over Sussex in Coventry. However, that winning streak was then broken at the hands of our biggest rivals, Worcestershire County Cricket Club, a 116-run loss to be specific at New Road. And then that was followed by a four-wicket loss to Yorkshire at Edgebaston. So looking at that early season four, they were three and three. They were mid-table. At that point in the season individual performances aside, was there anything in your opinion which suggested that Warwickshire could ever be contenders in that 1911 no, it, season? It didn't appear, did it, like it? I mean, you are talking, Aaron, as though I was there. I don't quite go back that far. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, as you say, look at those stats and clearly not. And I'm sure there were, cynic, there were cynics around that um, because Frank Foster's style of captaincy was exceedingly maverick and over attacking at times, and Dick Lilly, the the one, the England's cricketer, the veteran England cricketer, the one guy in the dressing room that didn't take to Frank Foster's captaincy, I'm sure was probably already agitating against him or grumbling about him when um, they hit those couple of defeats. Just one example of of um, Foster's um, incredible uh, sense of adventure on the field was in that first game, his first game as captain up at Lancashire when. Uh, Johnny Tildesley was batting for Lancashire, one England regular in the heart of England, as well as Lancashire's batting. And he came in and Frank Foster threw the ball to Jack Parsons, who never bowled. And uh, Dick Lilly at the time said, what are you doing, Captain? 
Um, and um, Parsons duly produced an appalling leg-side long, long hop, which Tylesley somehow managed to edge to the wicketkeeper, and he was out. And that incredible little passage of play at once illustrated the, the sort of tricks that Foster was um, capable of pulling and that, that they could be successful. But also, of course... I mean, many people, well, that's just luck. That's not going to happen every time. And I guess when they had a couple of defeats, it would have been like a football manager coming in as an immediate uh, run of good form and then reality returns. And I'm sure the cynics were, were circling at that point and, and probably thinking, well, here we go with another middling season. Well, I'd probably agree with that, to be honest, because looking at the next couple of games as well, a 14-run win over Derbyshire in Blackwell but then on the 27th of June, the Bears lose to Gloucestershire, Gilbert Jessup's Gloucestershire, one of the absolute legends of Gloucestershire County Cricket Club. Three wicket loss to them at the Spa Grounds in Gloucester. And it's important to remember that date, the 27th of June, because as history would pan out, that was the last time that the Bears would lose in the 1911 season, which is quite staggering. And one of the reasons which is hypothesised as to why this happened was due to the weather. Now, Brian, I, I don't know how much you know about this in terms of the actual meteorological side of it, because I've got to be honest, I don't know the ins and outs of it myself. But there was a heat wave in 1911. And just for those out there who don't understand the impacts on cricket at that time, because they were playing on uncovered wickets, just how important of a catalyst was that weather pattern in allowing Warwickshire to go on this incredible run of form and ultimately lift the county championship. Well, it helped, didn't it? But you've still got to have cricketers that are capable of uh, exploiting those conditions. And of course, fast wickets and bouncy wickets with bowlers like Foster and Field around are going to be uh, helpful. Um, but uh, And it is right, if it had been a, a, a claggy, wet summer, then it may not have happened because uh, Foster and Field could not have been so effective. Um, but it did turn out that way. Other teams had fine fast bowlers around as well. It's interesting, we're talking about Frank Field, aren't we, and how, how brilliant he was this season and others. He never got a call for England, did he? So, which is which is curious. Uh, just as his, um, uh, just as Ollie Hannan-Dolby probably will never get a call for some very, very fine cricketers don't. But just getting back to the weather, I mean, basically Foster and Field had to exploit it and, for, and also they had to stay fit, didn't they? Now, Frank Field was a big unit and he bowled an awful lot of overs. And for him to stay fit, and I know there were several times when he bowled through a lot of pain because he, he grudgingly admitted it afterwards. He was he would never, ever say, I can't bowl captain, but he did bowl through a lot of discomfort. And he kept going and he kept bowling devastating spells through to, was it uh, the first week or the first couple of days in September and that amazing day at Northampton? which we shall discuss in due course, the moment where the Bears ultimately lifted the county championship against Northamptonshire County Cricket Club. But just mentioning those seamers, and up until this point of the podcast, we mentioned a lot about the likes of Frank Foster. Trust me, we've got a lot more to discuss about him as the episode keeps going. But we've, we've discussed a lot about Foster and Field. But they weren't the only seamers in that team, were they? In fact, the third seamer was a certain Sidney Santel from Peterborough which isn't in Warwickshire, but again, he qualified at a, at a later point. Up until Eric Holly's emergence on the scene, he was Warwickshire's first-class leading wicket-taker, wasn't he, Brian? So what can you tell me about the career and the life 
of Sidney Sansal and his importance and his role, I suppose, in this championship yeah. win. Well, Santal was was another uh, one of the, the numerous guys in the dressing room that had been around quite a long time by 1911. I mean, arguably his best years were behind him. But in a way, he was a great foil. I mean, Foster and Field took by far the most wickets. But then um, Santal would come on with his metronomic accuracy and his medium pace. And it would just, and sometimes the, the batsman would perceive that the pressure was off and make errors to him. Very interesting guy actually, Santoli dabbled in, he was one of the first cricket journalists and did a did bits and pieces along those lines and also a bit of coaching and of course his son as well, Freddie Santoli, turned out to be another um, Warwickshire stalwart after the war. There was Cecil Hans I think, wasn't there, in the attack as well who also uh, bowled medium pace um, a bit of a bit part player but uh, also useful support uh, One guy that didn't deliver a ball in the 1911 season but was entering the club at that um, time was a certain Percy Jeeves as well who was about to become or would have become Warwick, one of, another great all-rounder for Warwickshire. Um, and in 1913 and 14, had two brilliant seasons, but of course then was tragically lost in the war. But in 1911, Jeeves was recruited from club cricket in Yorkshire and was just on the ground staff. And his first uh, experience of a Warwickshire player or a Warwickshire season was the amazing championship run. So that whetted his appetite to come, but he, he wasn't qualified to play in eleven. Well, Brian, you beat me to it because, to be honest, he was someone that I wanted to mention. I know, obviously, having seen your social media, having read a lot of your old articles as well, Percy Jeeves is someone who, I imagine, does mean a lot to you personally. Some of the words you've written about him are, are absolutely breathtaking, to be honest. And it's interesting you mentioned that because I was doing my, my research on the Stevens brothers and it was an old article from Mosley Cricket Club. And I found out about that and the fact that Jeeves at the time was playing for Mosley alongside the Stevens brothers. We mentioned yeah. that intrinsic link between the county and this side. That's another one, isn't it? Which makes you proud yeah. to be associated with this region. That's right. I mean, the clubs uh, in and around Birmingham are just so embedded in Warwickshire's history, isn't it? And, and that, that Birmingham League cricket then was really, really strong. Jeeves was allocated a Birmingham League club as soon as he arrived. It, it happened to be mostly, and he, he was taking fivers and sixfers straight away and it would have been no doubt good enough to go straight into Warwickshire's team but of course in those days the qualification rules were quite strict and he'd only just moved down from Yorkshire but the Stevens brothers as well as you say were they twins I think I yes they were oh, I didn't even know twins. that um yeah they were around as well of course and uh, I mean there was a little bit of depth to Warwickshire's bowling attack they didn't too often need it that season but then you've had of course you had um Billy Quaife with his, his extraordinarily slow spin bowling um, which also picked up a few wickets here and there. It did indeed, and it's funny you mention Billy Quaife because I, I wanted to bring this up as well. In terms of the qualification process, obviously that was a massive thing at the time, but another thing which rarely happened in those days was players moving from county to county. It wasn't like nowadays where you get players moving all the time. And Billy Quaife... And his his brother, actually, Walter as well, their move from Sussex at the time was very controversial, wasn't it? And I mention this because I'm, I'm looking at one of the results and it was actually the 80-run win over Sussex in Chichester. In, I'll say that again. <laughs> it was actually the 80-run win over Sussex in Chichester. Yeah, It's interesting that the Bears and Sussex even played at that point because for a number of years, Sussex refused to play Warwickshire as a result of what was known as the Quafe Affair. 
So what can yeah. you actually tell me about that, Brian, in terms of his move at the time and just why was it so controversial in the cricket establishment? That's a great question. I wish I could. I wish you could. I could fill you in on more. I do remember reading about that, mate. But I, honestly, that's one that I, I, it, the, the details are lost in time. But I know that Quaife was a very, very strong-minded guy. I mean, he upset people within Warwickshire, didn't he? When um, during the years, because he was he was always pressing for pro- professionals' rights, and they were underpaid. And of course, they were only paid in the winter in those days. And Quaife, on a number of occasions, asked for um, more bonus payments and and better money for the professionals. And he, as the years came on, obviously he was a great servant to Warwickshire and kept held the batting together in many ways. But he also was regarded as a real, uh, a bit of a troublemaker and a bit of a nuisance by, by Warwickshire, the club, and they had some right old ding-dongers along the way. You will have to educate me here, mate. I mean, I can't, I, I do remember it being quite controversial, the move of the two, the brothers from Sussex to Warwickshire, but... Um, the details are lost on me now. Well, to be honest, I, I don't have many details on it myself. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of it will have been lost to time, but I was just reading the fact that, that Sussex refused to play Warwickshire, and I found it interesting, actually. I think it was up until 1910 that that feud actually existed. So 1911 yeah. was the first time in a long time that these two sides had actually played one another. And fully enough, yeah, the Bears won both games. So thankfully, that was resolved in terms of the results that we gained from playing Sussex in both well, Coventry. Did... Sorry, sorry, mate. The counties did bear grudges a bit in those days, didn't they? Because I think Essex didn't play the Bears for some time, again, due to one of Quaife's um, uh, gestures. I think 1897 or something like that, they played at Leighton. And um, Billy Quaife rather provocatively entered the field through the gate that was destined for amateurs rather than professionals. And that really upset the host club. Um, and uh, I, I don't think I think they they didn't play Essex for quite a long time. They didn't play Kent for quite a long time, and or Nottinghamshire. It was really was bizarre, wasn't it? How the fixtures were done. It was pick and choose your teams, and um, I don't think you get away with that today. No, you certainly wouldn't. And yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that actually, because Essex, yes, that was another very famous beef. But almost the the Nottinghamshire one was very interesting. Because I have no idea where this came from. Because weren't weren't they our opponent in the first ever first class match? I think yes. the Bears beat them by by three wickets, didn't they? Yeah. In that, maybe maybe they were still grumpy about that. Yeah, in eighteen eighteen ninety four. I mean, that was a real that was an incredible result. They go your first class um, bow, and it's at Trent Bridge against one of the big six, and you turn them over. I mean, that was an amazing start for Warwickshire. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe they were still uh, a bit narky about that, but uh, it is curious, isn't it? And it does make a little bit of a mockery. I mean, the, obviously, the way the 1911 season panned out, um, Kent had a few thoughts on the point system because, of course, in, if the point system had been different, uh, they'd have been champions. It was it was all a little bit messy and full of grey areas in those days, wasn't it? But it worked out well for the Bears in 1911. And that's all that matters for us as Warwickshire County Cricket Club fans. It's that results at the end of the day. And you mentioned Kent there because Kent's at the time. We, we haven't actually alluded to this, but the big six, Kent were part of the big six. So Yorkshire, Surrey, Lancashire, Kent, Middlesex and Nottinghamshire were the powerhouses of county cricket at the time. So they had almost a monopoly of the test matches. I know Edgbaston hosted a test in 1902 
and the second one was in 1909. But other than that, we weren't regularly hosting test matches like today. But in addition to hosting the test matches, to producing all of the England players, they also had the most money. And between 1878 and 1910, obviously the championship had only came about in 1890, so the first 20 years of the championship, only those counties had lifted the trophy. It was a very, very difficult establishment to break. The status quo was very much the big six would win every single year. You'd either have Surrey or Yorkshire or Lancashire, Notts, etc., etc. And talking of Kent's, Kent at this moment in time were incredibly strong. They were led by the, the great Ted Dillon, and they'd won the championship in 1909 and 1910. But then on the 23rd of August, so this was one of the penultimate rounds of the county championship in 1911, they lost. And this was a massive, massive defeat. It was nine runs. They lost to Surrey at the Oval. And it opened the door, didn't it, Brian? But in terms of that yeah. Kent game, before we talk about the, the defeats and what it meant for Warwickshire's, well, I suppose, situation and end game heading into that Notts game, what, what, what do you have to say about that Kent team? What made them so special, in your opinion? Why were they so difficult to beat in the 1910s? Well, they, had great, they had great players, didn't they? And I mean, Titch Freeman and uh, Frank Woolley. And of course, it was only a couple of years down the line, they were to bowl the Bears out for 16, was it, in Tombridge, their low, the Bears' lowest ever total. Um, so they were a formidable side. And uh, I'm sure as um, the season went on, they will have um, been fairly confident that these upstarts from Birmingham would fade away and uh, um, they would clinch the title again. But uh, how many times... It's one of the great clichés of sport, isn't it? What momentum can do for you. And uh, as you say, that Warwickshire's last defeat of 1911 was quite early in the piece, wasn't it? And from then on, they just did get on a roll. The bowlers stay fit. The batsmen, it was really a bowling-led championship victory, but the batsmen scored enough runs. And Kent did in, really mess up against Surrey, which just, as you say, opened the door. The Bears just had to hold their nerve and, and have a bit of luck with the weather, both of which happened. It most certainly didn't. Brian, let's talk about that North Ants game because it's massive in this club's history. And just to give it some some background, I suppose, we'd mentioned that loss to Gloucestershire, right, in the eighth round of that season. That was followed by a massive innings and 296-run win over Hampshire Edgebaston. We then had a draw against Surrey, also at the Fortress. Then we won against North Ants by 227 runs, also in Birmingham. So three back-to-back-to-back home games, which ended in a winner draw and a win. <laughs> then we won our next three games. We've mentioned the Sussex result at Chichester. There was a seven-wicket victory over Gloucestershire at Edgebaston. And then there was the game at Harrogate's, which you alluded to before, Hunt Bryan, the 198-run victory over Yorkshire. And Frank Field took seven for 20 in that game. Those are some staggering figures, aren't they? Yeah. And as you've mentioned, uh, Yorkshire were one of the big six, weren't they? And, and one of the real powerhouses to go up there. To, so to go up there um, and, and trounce them in their own yard, if there was any member of the Bears um, team that still wondered whether they could really sustain this and win the title, you would think after that result, um, it erased all day. But it also just brought into mind how great Field was as a bowler. And of course... Never mind those wickets. He also managed to get Frank Foster onto the field of play on the third 
Bedford morning, which was quite an effort by the sound of it, because uh, Frank had been out investigating the hostelries of Harrogate until quite late in the night, it seems. Well, yeah, thankfully for the Bears, he did get him onto the field, and ultimately the visitors did win that game up in Harrogate. And uh, in fact, I was looking back on this, I'm not sure about the exact statistic, but I think it was just the second or third time the Bears had ever beaten Yorkshire in first-class cricket. It did not happen very often at all. So, again, you look at signs, patterns of, of things being written in the stars. I think that was certainly one of them in the 1911 well, the Bears, season. The Bears still owed them one, didn't they? From Was it 1896 when Yorkshire batted all through the first two days for about 900, wasn't it? <laughs> that was, uh, and I think that probably was still singing all those because quite a few players would still have been playing, I guess, in those days because some of the guys in 1911 were into their 40s, weren't they? So uh, that would have been a very sweet day for them up in Harrogate. Absolutely. And the, the less we talk about that, I think it was 889 declared. Um, <laughs> I think the less we talk about that, the the better, to be honest, as Bears fans. Not the proudest moment in our county's history. But again, they were only a few years into first-class cricket. You can't really blame them, to be honest. But it is definitely an unwanted record next to Warwickshire's name when it comes to first-class cricket. But after that victory over Yorkshire, you had back-to-back draws against Hampshire in Southampton and Worcestershire at Edgbaston. And then there were the three wins over Derbyshire, Lancashire and Leicestershire. So that set the scene quite spectacularly for an end-of-season showdown at Wantage Road against George Viles, Northamptonshire. Brian, what can you tell us about this game? Because I've read quite a bit about it. And right from the toss, this seems like a great game. It seems like this incredible occasion, almost, that the Bears pulled this off. What, what do you know about the game that took place at Wantage Road on the 26th of August? Well... One thing that is clear from all accounts of it is that, I mean, many, many things are totally different in 1911 to 2022, but one isn't different is the weather can absolutely turn you over. And if it had rained all week at Northampton, then Warwickshire wouldn't have had the chance to win the chance. And, and there was rain around. And uh, Frank Foster said in his, um, or he's quoted in Robert Brooks' ex- Robert Brooks' excellent book about him. He was saying that he just feared the worst. But he had a feeling as he was uh, travelling by train to Northampton on the the Friday before the game started on the Saturday that he had the feeling. He said that the gods were on Warwickshire's side and the weather was going to be okay. There was a bit of rain but not too much. And Field and Foster duly skittled Northampton, didn't they, on the first day. Then crowd the Charlesworth, who we haven't mentioned much, have we? And there's another astonishingly colourful character. Um, a man who did not lead an entirely sober lifestyle, it would be safe to say, but by all accounts, an absolute diamond of a fella, really kind and lovely towards the younger cricketers. He scored a great century. And then uh, Warwickshire's bowlers did set about doing the necessary again by now other results had all fallen into place and they knew if they won this this match they were county champions and they took seven didn't they on the on the second day northamptonshire just had three wickets to fall on the last day of the season warwickshire just needed it to stay dry and could they take those three wickets and as history would dictate they most certainly did and the glass ceiling was shattered and in in terms of the the game itself, actually, before we talk about the the momentous nature of that victory, because there are some fantastic pieces of information which give this almost greater gravitas in the wider critting context. 
I just wanted to talk about one quote, actually, Brian. And this is from Frank Field, and it comes from day one. And it came from the toss, as I alluded to. Foster lost the toss to Viles, funnily enough, who, who shares my name, but it's spelt differently. <laughs> but um, he lost the toss, comes back to Field. And I think Field said something along the lines of, oh, you're good, you're good for something, Skipper, or something like that. It was something quite cheeky, the response. But then he yeah. followed it up with one of the most iconic lines, I'd argue, in Warwickshire's history. And he said, leave it to me, Skip. I'll bowl them out. And what did they do? Yeah. They took nine wickets between them. Is that, again, a, a, a fair reflection of Fields as a character, I suppose, in terms of his personality and his reliability for the Bears? Yeah. And his confidence. Uh, I mean, there's nothing about anything that's on record from Frank Field to suggest he was arrogant. But he knew, like all all top cricketers do, you know how good you are, don't you? And it's not arrogant to think, well, I can bowl these guys out on a wicket with a bit of uh, moisture in it. And, and lo and behold, he did. But that's what you want to hear as a captain, isn't it? Uh, you, I do remember when I, in my halcyon days playing for Stonely, if uh, the captain lost the toss, we'd give him endless um, grief if we were doing what we didn't want to be doing. But uh, this this wasn't the case with Frank Field, was it? And and to be fair, Warwickshire did know now, didn't they, that they were just on a couple of days or 20 wickets in theory. With respect to Northamptonshire, they should win this game, having beaten so many other really top teams that season. They were on the cusp of history, history now, so their confidence was high. And then, as you say, they roll them on the first day. Uh, they get a decent first innings lead. Was it nearly 200? Uh, and then only the weather can deny them. But it didn't. And thankfully for Warwickshire, the Seamers did their job. They ticked off those final three wickets. The Bears winning by an innings and 33 runs at Wantage Road. And the glass ceiling was shattered. We've mentioned that stat beforehand. A team outside of the Big Six had not lifted the county championship up until this point. And for Warwickshire County Cricket Club, a team made up of those amateurs, those professionals, people from all different backgrounds and different starts in life, a team which had finished 14th the previous season, to break that glass ceiling, to scale English cricket's equivalent of Mount Everest was quite unbelievable. And, and Brian, in your opinion, how would you describe that achievement? Obviously, there's a lot of, of local pride for us as, as Warwickshire fans and Warwickshire lads ourselves, I suppose. But just how monumental was it for Warwickshire County Cricket Club of all counties to shatter that glass ceiling and become the champions of England? Well, it is monumental is probably the right word, Aaron. I mean, it was there was nothing to suggest it, it could happen. And uh, it's it's sometimes very easy for, for uh, unfancied counties to, or in any sport, in, in a football a football team, you have a, a good month or a good couple of months. But county cricket is unique, isn't it? Whereby you, if you're going to win the county championship, you have to keep performing day in and day out for months. For Warwickshire's ageing collection of mavericks to do that. It, it was an incredible feat. And as I said earlier, I think it is the most remarkable county championship victory ever. If not, Aaron, it's a big call. This, if not the most amazing sporting achievement ever by anyone in the world. And that's a big call. But I reckon it's a candidate. It was just a remarkable effort. And it was uh, greeted on the joy it brought as well. I mean, we all know what joy Warwickshire and cricket can still bring. I mean, how, how wonderful was that last day of last season and the championship win the previous uh, season. But uh, Foster and his um, and his team, they've got the train back to 
Snow Hill and were, were met by thousands in Birmingham city centre because the news had got back there via the local newspapers in those days and via telegraph. And the, the whole city was, was absolutely incredulous about this wonderful feat. Um, and that's what sport can do. It, it lifts people, doesn't it? And it brings great joy. And that's what Foster's team did. They most certainly did, Brian. And again, just listening back to that, it, it does make you incredibly proud. Obviously, neither of us were alive at that moment, but goodness me, it makes me a tad bit envious. That must have been quite incredible for people to have experienced that and the celebrations afterwards. I heard that they had a lot of champagne in uh, in Northampton, let's just say, at the end of that game to celebrate first and foremost. But then you mentioned that they were greeted by thousands of people in yeah. Birmingham, which up until this point was not a cricket city. And Brian, you'll probably know this more than me, but am I right in thinking that in 1906... The Bears almost went under financially because of lack of members. Yeah. It was only the, the secretary, Roland Ryder, who, who saved us from that predicament. Yeah, it, it, was, um, it was a battle in the early years. Um, and I think, to be fair, the, the football fraternity of the city really helped out. I know West Brom and Aston Villa had a couple of friendlies to raise funds to keep um, the Bears going. And uh, yeah, it wasn't easy in those, those early days. The first Test match in 1902, they made a loss on, which I mean, is great for the prestige of the club, but it, it, it had a financial cost. So it, it was far from easy um, and because they were still outside the big counties. But uh, this, um, the 1911, of course, gave them credibility. And it, I mean, how, who, how many, who knows how many people first got into cricket by seeing some of their victories in 1911 or even being part of the celebrations. Absolutely. And that's what makes it even more incredible, isn't it? When you think of the background behind this, the fact that the Bears had made their first-class debut in 1894, championship debut in 1895 as part of that expansion, alongside the likes of Leicestershire, Essex, Hampshire, example. Then you had the terrible years, right, of mediocrity. And that was Warwickshire's reputation up until this point. They had some decent cricketers, but they were nothing special. They'd usually finish mid-table or towards the latter end of the table. Then you have 1910, five different captains, 14th, finishing below Worcestershire yet again. And then against all odds, against the establishment, against the status quo, 1911, they shocked the entire cricketing world to lift the county championship led by a 22-year-old Frank Foster. You had those workhorses, you had those local boys, some of whom we'll mention in a bit more detail when we talk about the legacy of this team. But Brian, I'd agree with your, your overall view. I think it is one of the most staggering things, achievement-wise, in the history of sports, let alone cricket. And that's why I wanted to bring this story to life, because you see it on Wikipedia, or you might see it at the ground now, where we've got it underneath the the, the South stand, and it says County Champions 1911. But I don't think it does the story justice. This is one of the most interesting teams and one of the most interesting sporting tales of all time. And in terms of that aftermath, Brian, what do you say was the legacy of that team? Obviously, in the short term, probably wasn't what we would have hoped for. 1912 was not a good season at all. But in terms of that longer-term legacy, heading into maybe the 1950s even, just yeah. how important was this victory in terms of putting Warwickshire County Cricket Club on the right path to success? It was important. And also, I think it was probably important for county cricket as well that the big six uh, stranglehold was broken and other counties were subsequently, obviously, almost every county now has, has 
has won the championship. But it, Warwickshire it was that broke through first. Of course, the legacy was was to be tragically disrupted, wasn't it? Because very soon the world was the uh, World War One uh, arrived and and county cricket w- went into abeyance for four and a half years, and and with all the tragedy that that. Uh, that entailed, but uh, it was an astonishing story. And uh, do you know, I we just met talking about the game at Northampton when uh, when it was clinched. You know, obviously we've probably all been to Northampton many times since then, and and I do very rarely go, especially for a four day game, and look around the ground. And of course, totally different now. But it was on that plot, on that piece of land, that all this incredible momentous match unfolded back in 1911 and I think that's a very special thing about the history of sport isn't it that in so many cases the areas on which famous or the actual fields on which these famous matches unfurled are still there and you can still see and visualize them and you can almost see Frank Foster and Frank Field um, hand in hand walking from the field Wanted Road back in 1911. It's a, it's a very special achievement, and uh, it actually, you mentioned the the um, it's still in evidence in the South Stand in the players' dining room at Edgbaston. All the county championship pennants from the victories are all uh, on the wall in there to uh, inspire our lads and and just let the opposition know you know that's a pretty successful county this is. And the 1911 one is there is first on the list, and it's of spoken to the to one or two of the Bears players um, about that and we've spoken about the incredible story and it, it is and, and, and it inspires. I mean like Liam Norwell, what he did on the last day of last season was inspiring Foster and Field and his team. They were the same. They were indeed Brian and it is just remarkable. It's remarkable. I could talk about this all day long because it was just the most unbelievable cricketing stories you couldn't write a script better than this and i'm actually surprised and i'd like to know your opinion on this as to why this isn't more in the public knowledge you know why hasn't there been a biopic made about this or why has there not been a famous piece of media because in terms of the immediate aftermath in the media i suppose there is that famous punch cartoon isn't there with william shakespeare and frank foster warwick thou art worthy one of the most iconic images probably of this counter, you know, we're named after Shakespeare and you had the captain of the team meeting at the middle in Edgebaston in that cartoon. But why do you think it hasn't been given that, that media exposure per se? Well, it's a long, it's a long time ago now, isn't it? And I, it is a, it is a great story. I mean, you and I know it well, and I'm sure a lot of the people uh, listening to this conversation are well aware of it, but it, more widely, it's probably not known how incredible and how colourful and how bizarre in some ways the story was of of turning this shambles of a team into champions in the space of a, of a few weeks, really. I mean, I must admit, I did start, I did think about writing a book about this season alone because it's just such an exceptional story. But then I, I found out more about the Percy Jeeves story and I wrote that one instead because Percy Jeeves is, is just an incredible story in his own right. Um, but I mean, the, the book is there still to be written. And as you say, it, I mean, Frank Foster is just an incredible central character, isn't he? I mean, there is clearly, um, he, of course, his life was so subsequently to turn out to be um, quite difficult as well in later years. But what an incredible human being he was. What an incredible character. What today's media would make of him. Uh, who knows? My word, uh, what an extraordinary, dynamic, flawed, brilliant character. Willie Walton and Brian, you've set me up beautifully there 
to be honest, because in terms of the, the latter stages of today's episode, I did want to talk about the aftermath and the legacy of certain players, and the central character, the main protagonist, is of course the captain, Frank Foster, who, again, I'd mentioned in passing for a number of years now, because I'd known him as the captain of this side, but I had no idea as to just how interesting his life actually was, but in equal parts, just how tragic it was, in particular at the conclusion of the First World War and the years that followed, because I read an article, actually might have been one of your Birmingham Mail ones, or it might have been a Crickbuzz article, and it was when they found his memoirs at Edgebaston, and the quotes was as follows, actually. He said that Northampton, sorry, the quote is as follows, my joy was unbounded, I'll always remember Northampton for giving me the greatest day of my life. Now, if you know how his life panned out, that's yeah. one of the most cathartic sentences you're probably ever going to hear because he ultimately yeah. died at, at an insane asylum in Northampton. So in terms of his meteoric rise and fall, Brian, how would you describe the career of Frank Foster? And the follow-up questions to that would be, how would you describe Frank Foster, the man, upon that right. accident in 1915? Well, that I mean, that's where his his professional cricket career um, really ended, wasn't it? But of course, the I mean, he and his last first class appearance for the Bears in 1914, at the last game of the championship season, him and Percy Jeeves bowled mighty sorry to defeat Edgebaston. Percy Jeeves, of course, never played cricket again because he disappeared on the Somme in 1916. Um, there's a splendid book about him, you know, called The Real Jeeves, which uh, your your listeners may wish to have a look at at some point. Still available, by the way. But Jeeves Jeeves was to was to finish um, it, it tragic style in that way, but Foster in a very different way. He finished that game against Surrey with wickets in successive balls and never played first class cricket again. So he's forever on a hat trick in first class cricket. Is Frank Foster, but it, it all it all went very badly wrong for him in a personal way. He he did drink. He succumbed to drink. He he got in, he went to London and got into quite a lot of tangles financially. And subsequently, much later on in life, he really tragically, he was banned from Edgebaston because he'd uh, been to a few games and been abusive to members of staff and, and former players. And uh, he spent the last 10 years of his life, as you say, in Northampton County Asylum. Um, and it was really, really a, a tragic end for a brilliant man. Well, it wasn't. Uh, and his story, actually, again, was central to the inspiration for this series because I had no idea about this before I did my my research. But he is one of the most almost Shakespearean characters in, in cricket history, isn't he? In terms of this meteoric rise, the guy was incredible at cricket, made his debut in 1908, captain by the age of 22 in 1911. Obviously, there's that story as well about the love interests and the business interests. He was this remarkable character but at the same time deeply flawed almost like something that William Shakespeare would write and I just yeah. found it ironic in a way the fact that there was that punch cartoon because you know he was meeting Shakespeare in the middle in that in that illustration but yeah. it's just such a shame isn't it the fact that we have this great cricketer and I don't even think the stats do it justice but for those who who are into their stats I'll give you them now he scored 6,548 first-class runs at an average of 26.61. High score of 305 not out, which he scored in a day, didn't he? Against Worcestershire in Dudley in 1914, that was, wasn't it, Brian? Yes, that's right. 
And that was one of our county records until Brian Lara decided to score 501 against Durham in 1994. But in addition to that, 717 wickets at an average of 20.75. This guy was one of the greatest all-rounders in England at the time. Brian, in your opinion, again, I suppose, why do you think not many people know about him? Was it because well, he was this deeply flawed character? Was it because of that, that tragic later life story that we don't know possibly, more about Frank Foster? I think possibly that is, um, that is the case because towards the end of his life, when clearly he'd upset a lot of people and he, 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 was, um, he lived the last 10 years of his life, of course, basically hidden away as you were in asylums back in the 1940s and 50s. And when his obituaries were written, uh, his, his his cricketing feats were um, were listed, but there was no mention of his later life. It was almost as though um, I mean, it wasn't a particularly enlightened era, was it back then? And uh, any any sort of mental health issues that they weren't particularly well handled in those days. So he was he was almost airbrushed out of cricket history in a way, um, which is which is unfortunate because, as you say, we're talking a, a lot about his personality and his maverick tendencies, but. What a brilliant cricketer he was, wasn't he? I mean, he, straight from bowling and batting Warwickshire to the championship, he went and uh, with um, Barnes won England the Ashes in Australia in 1911-12. I mean, he, he was he, he was superb in that season. He took 45 Test wickets at 20. Um, you know, he's he was just an exceptional bowler. Flared all too briefly, um, but but a, a truly great cricketer. I, I would. Who can judge, can compare cricketers of different eras? But looking at the stats and, and his, the, the impact he had on his teams, I'd say Frank Foster was the greatest cricketer Warwickshire have ever had. He's certainly up there, isn't he? He really is. I mean, obviously, we never had the, the pleasure of watching him live. But again, by all accounts, you read the old wisdoms, you read articles about him, and he just had this elegance, a panache, that maverick nature, almost a basball element to his, his game in comparison to cricketers of the time. And as I said, I think it is just important that we as Warwickshire fans do acknowledge the importance of his role in that championship side. Obviously, there isn't anything at the ground I can think of that really remembers him. Is there, Brian? I'm just trying to think. I can't think of anything specifically about Frank. No, you mentioned his triple century at Dudley, by the way, Aaron. And that was a real uh, um, indication of his skills, I think, as well, because Foster was by nature, an aggressive batsman. I mean, he he was pinch-hitting nearly 100 years before it became in vogue. You know, he sometimes would go in first and try and move the score along, which in those days was unheard of. But it, And so he hit sixes galore. But in th- that um, triple century at Dudley included no sixes. It was, by all accounts, just a really super innings of proper strokes and, and graceful batting. And, he, and that's what he had in his locker as well. He was a very highly skilled player who was just able to... To, to bat to any situation. So, yeah, very, very fine cricketer. And, and it is it is very sad that his personal life did, it did somewhat collapse in the second half of his life. It is a shame. It is a shame. But, again, via mediums like this, we can at least honour his cricketing legacy. And I think that is very important to do so for ourselves as, as county cricket fans. And just in terms of some other players that we haven't mentioned so much in today's podcast, but you mentioned Jack Parsons very early on in the recording, Brian. Again, we talk about interesting individuals, and I think individuals make this story even more interesting, actually. 
but he led quite the life as well, didn't he? In, in 1911, he was just 21 years old. He was just trying to establish himself as a bit of a player in that team. But then at the advent of World War I, he went and joined the, the Warwickshire Yeomanry, who, for those who don't know, there's a, there's a museum in Warwick. It's one which I've visited many a time, and there's a famous painting by Lady Butler of the, of the charge at Hooge, which is in Palestine. I think it's near Gaza, if my geography is correct. But what I didn't know until doing the research of this team was that he was a part of that, and he actually won the military cross for gallantry for being a part of that charge. It's one of the greatest cavalry charges in, in British military history. And then after that, as if that wasn't enough, he'd have other fleeting appearances for Warwickshire in the late 1910s and the late 1920s. But then he became a reverend, and he went and played some cricket in India. He was a very interesting man, wasn't he, Jack Parsons? Yeah. And another very, very talented cricketer, very graceful batsman. And uh, as, yeah, I think was he one of the first cricketers to be ordained after he'd been played? Because he was a professional cricketer. Then he was ordained and played for Warwickshire as an amateur. And then I think he might have gone back to play professional again. Because in those days, of course, guys did play quite late in their lives. And I think he was still scoring runs for Warwickshire well into the 1930s. But no, and as you say, another fascinating character. I think he was quite peripheral in 1911, was he? Didn't he? Because he was just coming into the side then. Um, but then yeah. you get him, obviously, a very godly young man and a very erudite young man. And then you get someone like Crowther, Crowther Charlesworth, who's just a lovely, real working class guy from, from Lancashire, um, who uh, just by all accounts had a heart of gold. Subsequently, I think, was it 1919? when the Australians visited Edgbaston and there was a rain break um, and it looked as though it was going to be a rain stop play for the day. So Crowther uh, went off to um, pass a little bit of time uh, in in um, Cannon Hill Park and was subsequently uh, the, um, when the sun came out and they resumed, um, Crowther unfortunately had had a couple too many and couldn't, couldn't uh, resume himself. Uh, Again, you wouldn't get that happening. Too. I don't think if Haney, if Haney went off to Cannon Hill Park and had a couple during a rain break, I don't think that would go down too well. But Charles, Charles was, was ever when I when I wrote the book about Percy Jeeves, I remember there's a Jeeves said in an interview one time, "What an absolute gent um, Charlesworth was," and he lent him a bat to play with, and then chided him for damaging it when Jeeves scored some runs. He said, what are you doing wearing my butt out like that? But evidently just a lovely guy. So you've got this great big range of characters which Foster melded into this astonishing team. So, yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary story. It is. It really is an incredible story. And, and just one final person that I just wanted to mention. In fact, there's two. There's two because I wanted to end on a Birmingham connection. But we'll start with, with one of the other batsmen. And that's Sep Kinnear, Septimus Kinnear, to give him his proper name. He was 39 years old at the time. He was from Corsham in Wiltshire. And it, it, he's, again, another very interesting character. The fact that he was called Septimus in the first place, I didn't know this, but he was the seventh child in a family of 13. So that's the etymology of his name. And in 1911, he was our leading run scorer. He scored 1,418 runs, averaged 44, and he scored 268 not outs against Hampshire at Birmingham. Brian, what do you know about Sepp Kinnear in terms of his, his play style, in terms of his approach to cricket? What was he like as a cricketer? His, 
his uh, approach to cricket was a little bit more pragmatic than Frank Foster's. I think he was a, he was a, a solid, a, a real accumulator, and of course his his, his great nineteen eleven season earned him a call up for Australia. I think he's a one a one test uh, member of the one test club. He played one test match out in um, Australia. I think it was in nineteen eleven twelve on the same party as Foster. He became very close to Frank Foster. Uh, on that trip, again, two more different men you you could not wish to meet. But um, uh, and I think there are some um, there's some documentary suggestions that Frank might have led Septimus astray in one or two ways uh, socially. But um, they were they were clearly very close. And and I think Kinnear did he get quite a big score at Chichester that year? He he was he was one of the men that actually delivered the runs to which Field and Foster could bowl and. Uh, uh, Kinnear and Quaif, uh, they were the real linchpins of the batting. They most certainly were. And yeah, you mentioned that game at Chichester. Yeah, he scored two centuries in that game. So prolific run scorer. And actually, as a result of that, he was named as a Wisdom Cricketer of the Year in 1912. So again, Sep Kinnear, someone for Warwickshire fans to be aware of, an integral part of that championship winning team in 1911. And Brian, I just wanted to end, I suppose, with this person because he went on to become a beloved figure at Edgebaston. He was pretty young at the time. He was 25 in 1911, but a certain Ernest Tiger Smith, one of Warwickshire's finest ever wicket keepers. And goodness me, haven't we had an entire slew of those over the years, starting with Dick Lilly, who was one of England's first out and out specialist keepers. Then Tiger Smith himself, Keith Piper, Tim Ambrose, Michael Burgess. In, in modern years, we do have something here in the Midlands, which produces outstanding wicketkeepers. I'm not entirely sure what it is. But in terms of Tiger Smith, again, we speak about characters, Brian. What was he like as a person? What what can well, you course, attribute to the man? Of course, he was, he was his longevity was quite astonishing, wasn't it? He, he joined the, the Bears, was it the 1890s? And he was still coaching, I think, in the 60s and the 70s. And, and that's one of the lovely things about the history of Warwickshire County Cricket Club is the thread that comes through it, isn't it? Because Tiger Smith, Coach Dennis Amis. Dennis is still very much integral to the Bears scene now. We all love talking to him and speaking to him and hearing his memories. And he speaks very fondly of Tiger. And Dennis will pass it on. And and the guys that are playing now speak to Dennis. You know, so there's this continuous thread. Tiger Smith was another of the Bears that helped um, England win the Ashes the, the winter after the Championship season, of course. And they still talk. I think it was Clem Hill, the Australian captain who was uh, brilliantly stumped by Tiger off Frank Foster um, uh, in a wonderful piece of cricket which subsequently it might have um, evoked uh, a few memories or a few memories might have been evoked when do you remember when Burgess took an incredible leg side stumping off OHD a couple of years ago it was that sort was of magical yeah it was wonderful wasn't it and uh, against you Joe just Clark that's right, Joe Clark, and you you wonder how quickly wicketkeepers can see and react, don't you? But taking a leg side stomping off Frank Foster that would have taken some doing. But um, Tiger Smith did it, and um, of course he uh, mercifully um, survived the First World War, like, like most of the Bears did. They just lost, um, sadly, three or four players, didn't they? And Tiger was to was to continue scoring runs and keeping wicket well after the war. And then became one of the great coaches as well. So, yeah, one of the one of the great all-time bears, without a, without a doubt. Most certainly was. To be honest, he deserves a, a podcast episode 
by his by himself really i suppose just discussing his life incredible story watch the bears at the age of 10 there's a story of him climbing a tree to watch the bears versus kent yeah. in 1896 then he went and worked at cadbury's lost the tips of two fingers that didn't stop him though went on to debut yeah. for us in 1904 and then in that 1911 season at a time when keepers were very much keepers and not wicketkeeper batters 824 yeah. runs he stood up to foster at the stumps as well he was just an outstanding keeper and Again, a legend of Warwickshire County Cricket Club and one who I know by people who met him, very deeply missed as well. Seems to be a great yes. character. Absolutely. And probably he, well, not probably, he was definitely an absolute rock for Frank Foster because, I mean, Foster was was doing some really unusual, adventurous things with his captaincy in 1911. And, and Dick Lilly, who was the wicketkeeper of the England and Warwickshire wicketkeeper and had been for 15 years or so up to that season, he fell out with Foster midway through the season and effectively walked away. So Warwickshire at that point would not have had a wicketkeeper had Tiger Smith not been there. And he just stepped up to it and 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 Dick Lilly's departure didn't derail anything because Tiger Smith was there to score his runs and take his wicket, take his catches and stumpings. And he did that in abundance, didn't he? Outstanding keeper. And funny enough, actually, Dick Lilly, someone who we haven't gone into too much detail about, but I found this interesting, also worked at Cadbury's. So there was such that intrinsic Birmingham connection and again, it just... Yeah evokes great pride for us as as people from Warwickshire and the West Midlands. And Brian, actually, that relates perfectly to my final question. It's a rather prevalent question to end today's podcast on, but we spent an hour, hour and 10 minutes discussing that side. And obviously, we're both massive Warwickshire fans. Warwickshire means the absolute world to us. But in the, in the modern day, when obviously franchise cricket is now being discussed a lot more in this country and certain media personalities are discussing the future of counties, I just wanted to ask you one final question, and that is, Brian Halford, what does county cricket mean to you and what makes it special, in your opinion? I think county cricket is it's, it's just part of the fabric of this sporting nation, isn't it? And part of the fabric of a lot of people's lives. And, and that's, that's not unique. I mean, football is the same, isn't it, in many ways. But just talking about 1911 and how, how crowds met the... Warwickshire team at uh, Snow Hill Station that day because that's how um, that's how much it meant to them. But the Great Escape this year, the last day, the feedback for that it rippled around the world, didn't it? The joy that the Championship um, triumph the, pre- the previous year brought to so many people who are connected to Warwickshire. They're not going to gather at uh, New Street or Snow Hill Station these days. That's not, Life has moved on a great deal. And we're all that much more disparate and remote these days and a lot more busy. But my word, it still means a great deal to so many people. And, and, and county cricket, well, I, I hope, always will. It's under fire a little bit. But then when hasn't it been, Aaron? If you go through every single wisdom in the history of the great tome and look at the notes to, by the editor, there will be some sort of introspection and some um, some somebody saying county cricket's got to change it's doomed it's survived so far and this is not to be complacent because of course there's a lot going on now that hasn't been in the in the mix before like the hundred there's a lot more there are different um elements to it now but i think just county cricket is just a very special environment with a lot of very special people from players to supporters to staff involved in it and and it's something to be treasured it is indeed, Brian. To be honest, I couldn't really have articulated that much better myself. I think that's what makes it so special to me. It's 
that that local identity obviously being a boy born in warwick this is my club my county very much part and parcel of my life and has been since 2009 when i first went to watch us play glamorgan in a terribly rain affected cb40 match in the second city but the love just got greater and greater and greater ever since then and i think something else which makes it tremendously special is almost that intrinsic link between the history of the game and you think of these pioneers these early almost these legends i suppose who, who walked in those steps and it's that being molded so beautifully now with the modern game and obviously the tremendously exciting cricket that we've witnessed in the past few years, county cricket never fails to deliver when it comes to entertainment, excitement, and of course, meaning to fans. So honestly, Brian, I, th- I think that is a lovely place to wrap up what's been an excellent episode of the podcast. It's absolutely flown by. I've loved every single second of it, discussing all things Frank Foster, Warwickshire, and of course, that 1911 county championship winning team. But before we say our final goodbyes for the recording, do you have anything to plug or promote? Any social media channels, websites, businesses, anything like that? I don't, mate. If anybody, I mean, if anybody is really interested in the the book about Percy Jeeves, it's called The Real Jeeves. Um, it's available on Amazon, but honestly, it's it's been out there for some time now. But I am quite proud of that because Percy Jeeves was an incredible guy who met a, a very sad end. Uh, but no, um, it's it's a pleasure to talk to you, mate. And uh, it is a it's a wonderful subject, 1911, isn't it? I'm really I'm really pleased that you you're giving it the uh, the uh, airing that it deserves. Honestly, Brian, it's been my pleasure and I'll continue to do so as well. We'll all be 1911 County Championship experts by the end of the, the County Cricket Podcast run. I'll make sure of that. And of course, we'll leave the link to that book, The Real Jeeves. We'll leave the Amazon link in the podcast description below. So listeners, if you want to go and, and purchase a copy, please feel free to do so in your own time. But that is it from us two here at the County Cricket Podcast for today's episode. To each and every single one of you wonderful listeners out there, thank you very much for tuning in. And as always, guys, we'll see you on the next one. There we go, Brian.